Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Mark, chapter 12. It's the last week of Jesus' life. The Jewish religious leaders are desperately trying to entrap Jesus by asking him what they think are three tricky questions. The first two have been answered with such authority and wisdom that they actually left and went away for a while. In fact, the gospel writers record that the religious leaders actually did marvel at Jesus' answers, and the listening crowds were struck with astonishment. The leaders were so set on destroying Jesus that two of the most powerful and influential groups in Israel who utterly despised each other were now united in this very purpose of destroying Jesus. The Pharisees wouldn't even approach him directly anymore. And the Sadducees, our text says, has, were actually silenced. In our passage today, we'll come to one last question, the third question, trying to entrap Jesus. And we'll find this third entrapment question, we'll look at it, and then we'll look at Jesus turning the tables on them once more, the religious leaders, and he asked them a question. He asked them a question. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 37. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all the whole, all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said... <clears throat> How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. 
So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it looks like the Pharisees have regrouped. And instead of going together for one last try, they send one of the scribes who Matthew tells us in his parallel text was a lawyer. I was hoping you'd look at art instead of me drinking here. This information tells us that this man was an expert of experts in the Mosaic Law, and even perhaps that he was also very adept and experienced in adjudicating religious and social disputes. In other words, he was an expert at hearing and ruling in all sorts of religious issues. He was the perfect man for this assignment. In other words, we also learn, especially here in Mark's account, that he was really a cut above the others. At least he recognized the wisdom of Jesus in the way Jesus answered well to the previous questions. So while this lawyer did allow himself to be used by the group of religious leaders in trying to trap Jesus... There are indications in the text that he was genuinely interested in this particular question. Something else to consider here that will help us understand the religious leader's strategy to ask this particular question. The Pharisees were especially consumed with enumerating and categorizing all the Mosaic laws listing all the commandments, distinguishing 613 commands, 248 of them positive, and 365 negative. Not only that, they were very concerned about ranking all the Mosaic commands in order of importance. So this was a topic of very real importance to this scribe lawyer. One pastor writes, Because Jesus' teaching of Scripture was so utterly contrary to theirs, the Pharisees were convinced that he must be teaching a message he considered to be greater than that of Moses. And it was evidence to that effect that they now hoped Jesus would disclose. Because to contradict Moses was what? To contradict God and be guilty of heresy. Their purpose was to expose him as an apostate and thereby turn the people against him. At the end of verse 28, we see the question. Which commandment? is the most important of all. And what's his answer? Verses 29, 30, and 31. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes here from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, the most important, and from Leviticus 19, verse 18, for the second, love your neighbor. The Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 passage, combined with several others in chapter 11 of Deuteronomy and Numbers 15, is known as the Shema, which literally means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Jews tried to follow literally verses 4 through 8. By doing something that you've probably seen, <clears throat> especially if you love to watch the old Ben-Hur movie. And what is that? Wearing little leather boxes containing these specific verses in very, very small writing on a man's forehead and upper left arm during prayer. And they're called phylacteries. And in verse 9, literally by attaching a small box to the doorpost of their home, also with these verses, and that's called a mezuzah. You remember that scene? Ben-Hur comes back, excited, goes to the door, always touches the door, and always used to wonder what he was doing at first. That's what he was doing. Jesus calls out these little practices in Matthew 23, 5, because most of the people did those things for an outward show of being obedient and righteous. Now, in his answer, Jesus is emphasizing the comprehensiveness of the greatest commandment. In other words, we are to love the Lord our God with what? Every part of our being. Comprehensive. Love here in our text in Mark is the Greek agapeo. Most of y'all are familiar. This is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word that we see in Deuteronomy 6.5. And it refers primarily to an act of the mind and will. The determined care for the welfare of something or someone. It can include strong emotion. But its distinguishing characteristic is dedication to or commitment to the object of this love. It recognizes and chooses to follow that which is righteous, noble, and true, regardless of what one's feelings in a matter might be. Now, most of us probably need to have that read lots of times despite what your feelings are at a particular time. So agapeo in the New Testament is intelligent, purposeful, and committed love that is an act of the will. Now, you don't have to read between the lines to understand that, right? Loving this way means that you decide you're loving someone. Period. 
no matter what the response is, no matter how you feel, it's an act of the will, a commitment to the object of your love. And since we live in a world in which love can and does mean almost anything, it's very important for believers to understand what it means to love God and neighbor with every part of our being. And this is quite a contrast with what we see here with the Jewish religious leaders who are already murdering Jesus in their hearts while putting on an outward show of righteousness. But honestly, we all fall short of this perfect love for God and other people. None of us can love perfectly. And that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus. Mark is the only gospel writer who includes the rest of the exchange between Jesus and this lawyer scribe. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. I just want to stop there for a second. After all the responses that Jesus has seen to these questions, his response to him as he finishes here is right on target. He knew that this guy saw through the performances and he recognized the truth. You've truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor, one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. You need the gospel in the Old Testament? That's what happened with this commandment as it was applied here in the New Testament. This is a commentary on the Old Testament. Do we understand that? This man was unique in his insight. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. But he's not quite there yet, but he's not far. So once again, the Pharisees have failed In their attempt to trap Jesus, he's turned the tables on them. And in the process, the people listening in to all of this have seen and heard the living word, God incarnate, explaining what the scriptures mean, who they point to, and how they are fulfilled in him. No wonder they were struck with astonishment. This was completely out of their range of thinking, their context. So, the crowds, you notice the distinction between how the crowds respond and how the religious leaders, they just were being quiet because they knew that he wasn't going to be tricked. But they were still determined to destroy him. But the crowd's response was in the great throng heard him how very last verse in our passage gladly 
after hearing all this, the extra laws, the oral traditions, added on, added on, so-and-so said this because so-and-so said this because so-and-so said this, and have Jesus come in and speak with this kind of authority, oh, what a breath of fresh air for the people. And again, the religious leaders humiliated publicly so much that they had to devise some more strategies. But before all that really sinks in, Jesus takes his turn, quote-unquote, and asks the religious leaders a question. In verses 35 through 37, this This section here is included, I wanted to be sure and include this today, as the part following the greatest commandment explained, because this is really an exclamation point that emphasizes the authority and the power of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. This is truth that we need to know. This is truth that we need to hang on to. This is truth that we need to think about when everything is dark, when nothing looks possible, and when there's pain, hurt, and despair. This is where we go because this is who he is. He just let them give him their best shot, which he swatted away almost like a little gnat that's flying around. Their questions had not confounded him. They had not troubled him or confused him at all. He didn't have to go confer with any other authority, go to the sacred scrolls, take a time out to think about his answer. He answered each time quickly, confounding the experts and speaking on no one else's authority but his own. Revolutionary. Now, just to make sure that they didn't miss what was really going on, how unsearchable his own authority was concerning the Scriptures, and how he knew exactly how much they did not understand, Jesus demonstrates his awesome majesty and his omniscience and his understanding for everyone there to see. His authority, understanding, and insight and ability to use the scriptures was so plain to see that Mark closes his record with, and the great throng heard him gladly, while Matthew closes his account with, And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day on did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. That is an amazing statement. And as Jesus taught them in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
David himself calls him Lord. So how is he David's son? <clears throat> if you're not quite following this, I want to take just a few minutes and try to explain. Make sure this is clear. The word Christ here in verse 35 is the Greek equivalent of anointed, which was used to mean the Messiah. That's how it was understood. The scribes and the Pharisees already know that Old Testament scripture taught that the Messiah was to be a son of David. That's true. See, these guys thought this was an easy question. Many Old Testament passages taught that one of David's natural descendants would reign on his throne forever, a distinct picture then of the promised Messiah. But then Jesus gives a zinger. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, you notice that? Declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So uh, how is he David's son? Well, let's just start at the beginning. No father calls his son Lord. Sons are subservient to fathers. There can only be one possible explanation. This one who was to come, the Christ Messiah, would somehow be greater than David was. And the only way that could happen is if the Messiah was more than a mere man. He would have to be a divine Messiah, that is God. And this just did not fit at all with the scribes and Pharisees' expectation of who the Messiah should be or what he should do. So they were not able to answer him a word on this one. Now let's look more closely at the passage that Jesus quotes from. This is Psalm 110, verse 1. One thing Jesus is doing here is showing how to interpret the Old Testament, which I mentioned earlier. His disciples must have been paying attention because Psalm 110 became the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Why is Psalm 110 so important and so often quoted in the New Testament? Because it is the greatest and clearest Messianic psalm. Psalms about the Messiah. Most of the psalms about the Messiah have parts that are about the Messiah and other parts about the earthly king at the time they were written. But Psalm 110 is exclusively about a divine Messiah. A divine king. A king who has been placed at the right hand of God in heaven and who is presently engaged in extending his spiritual rule throughout the entire earth. It's also about this divine king being a priest and a judge. 
So if you're familiar with the types in the Old Testament that point to the coming Messiah as prophet, priest, and king, we've got them all here in this one psalm. The Hebrew words in Psalm 110 are vital to understand if we are to to see why the scribes and Pharisees were so taken back by Jesus' question. Now, take a breath, and I'll try to do this right. In Mark 12, 36, it's Greek, the original. The word Lord appears the same. And it's curios. But in Psalm 110, verse 1, there are two different words in the Hebrew. The Lord, first, said to my Lord, two. The first time, if you're looking at the psalm, this is true, noted in most English translations because all the letters are capitalized. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And most of you have figured out from your notes that that is Jehovah or Yahweh in the Hebrew. The Lord here then then means what? The first Lord. It means the God of Israel. God of Israel. The second Lord is Adonai, which refers to an individual greater than the speaker. The speaker is who in the psalm? David. The Lord said to my Lord. So what we have in Psalm 110 is something like this. David David cites a word of God, the Lord, in which God tells another person, says to my Lord, and that other person is David's Lord greater than David, to sit at his God's right hand until he, God, makes the other person's enemies and the other person's footstool. Until he, God, makes the other person's enemies the other person's footstool. The other person is David's Lord. Jesus Christ is this person, the divine Messiah. And Jesus is explaining this here in the New Testament to make clear what the Old Testament meant, which must have been confusing for everybody who looked at it. David says to my Lord, sit at my right. Okay. The Lord said to my Lord, And Peter does exactly the same thing in his sermon in Acts 2, 34 through 36. David, for David, did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Okay, do you see how the disciples connected all the dots finally after the fact, if not before? Jesus Christ uses this one verse of Psalm 110 to say that David himself, in the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord. That's what he's saying. And the those religious leaders had no answer. Well, what does this quote say about the divine Messiah? What does it mean to sit at God's right hand? Well, we know the first part of this. The ancient world, to sit at a person's right hand was to occupy, occupy a place of honor. Remember James and John? There was two of them, so they wanted to be on both sides. The place of honor. But to sit at a king's right hand was more than an honor. Get this. It was to share his rule. It signified participation in the royal dignity and power like a son ruling with his father. And this is what Jesus has done since his resurrection and ascension. Do you see what Jesus is saying here to these scribes and Pharisees? He's pointing out authoritatively from Scripture they knew well that while they scorned him and were even right then trying to find a way to kill him, to get rid of him, God, his father, was going to raise him and receive him into heaven saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a wonderful passage explained by Christ himself. No commentary can come close. Jesus explaining Psalm 110, verse 1. And by God's doing, Jesus is at God's right hand, right now, ruling over all things in heaven and on earth. So it's because it's God's doing, it's It's not up to us whether Jesus Christ will be Lord or not. Think about that. It's not up to you. He is the Lord. You have no choice. The text, this text and many others make it very clear that we can fight that lordship and be broken by it, becoming what from the picture? That footstool under his feet? Or we can submit to his rule in humble obedience with prayer and thanksgiving. That's the choice. Jesus came once to die, and after that to ascend to heaven to share in the fullness of God's power and great glory. Remember Stephen? When Stephen, the first martyr, had his vision of the exalted Christ, 
It was of Jesus standing at the right hand of God to receive him into heaven. Acts chapter 7. When John had his vision of Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, it was of one who was as God himself. The apostle was so overcome by Jesus' heavenly splendor that he fell at his feet as though dead. Quote, Revelation 1.17. Do I need to say that we need to recover this understanding of who Jesus is and where he is now? We do. More and more. If we do, we will worship him better and with great reverence. Anyone who's caught a glimpse of the heavenly splendor and the sovereignty of Christ, his sovereign might, would do well to imitate the saints of ages past. It is only appropriate to worship him with deep reverence. You may pour out great love and recognition of your personal relationship with him. He is your Lord. You are his. And he is yours. However, you are not pals. He is Lord and Master. You are servant and disciple. He is infinitely above you and I in the scale of being. His throne holds sway over you for your present life and for assigning your eternal reward. He's a king to be honored, confessed, obeyed, and worshiped. And those humble gestures of adoration that we have are responses that are required in the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Oh God, again we are struck by Jesus' authority and power, his complete knowing, his omniscience. We're also struck by how he presented himself to a people, much of whom were in complete rebellion, leadership who had led the nation astray. And he kept answering, he kept performing, he kept forgiving, he kept showing mercy, he kept explaining the scriptures over and over and over again. And we know part of that, O oh God, is to reveal the hearts of the men who just wanted to kill him and get rid of him because their own power and authority and all the rest of it would be revealed and threatened 
and they knew if he was the king, they surely wouldn't have anything to do with it. And God, you use all those things to lift him up, magnify his nature, and let us see his kingship displayed as he served and how now he is just a day or two away from being hung on a cross and crucified to bear the sins of those he came to save. Oh God, when we see him just pick a scripture out from anywhere in the Old Testament and explain it in such a way that the so-called experts of the law were completely befuddled and had completely missed the points, we are amazed. And we pray that you would continue to open our hearts to hear him gladly through his written word. Oh God, we give you such praise and glory. It's nothing on our part. It's completely from your grace and your mercy that you have united us in him to know you. And we humbly ask that you would continue to work mightily in our hearts, that we would be so moved by you to see our own continued sinful rebellion and to hold on at the same time our redemption that Christ purchased for us by his blood. And that that would humble us and make us more and more dependent upon you, that it would make us able to love with this selfless love that comes from our wills, where we know that's what we're called to do, and we will do it because of what you have done for us as we depend on you and your indwelling spirit. Thank you for giving us a purpose in this life that's not just about the here and now at all. And Lord, we thank you that we can know you through him. We thank you that he did accomplish his mission. And we thank you for all the texts in our Bibles that give us the details, so much of the details about this last week of his life where everything comes to a head. Oh God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And we pray that you would bring glory to yourself as we learn to depend and obey and serve him in love for those, especially those who are also sons and daughters. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Well, I'm looking at Romans, a place where the very wordy Paul has one of the shortest benedictions in the whole New Testament because he's just explained what all the words mean. Let's do it again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You're dismissed.